At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then, book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to you want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Have you ever embellished a personal story to make it seem more interesting or impressive? I'm fairly certain we all have. But what if someone retold your story as fact and added their own extra details? Over time, as the story is repeated again and again, it takes on the air of authenticity and eventually becomes a myth. Today we are talking with Kevin Levin, historian and author of a book focusing on a significant myth surrounding the Civil War. This is Too Complicated for History. On today's episode, we're talking to Kevin Levin, who is an educator and historian and author, and we'll be talking about his book, Searching for Black Confederates, The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. Thanks for being here with us today. Great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. So we want to start out by talking about, I mean, your book was fantastic. I really enjoyed your book. And so before we actually go into what's in the book and what you dismantle, I was wondering if you could talk to us about the myth that you're talking about. You say it's the most uh, persistent myth of the Civil War. So can you explain first what that myth is? Yeah. So the so the myth of the Black Confederate goes something like this, uh, that anywhere between (laughs) anywhere between roughly 500 and 100,000 African-Americans whether they be enslaved or free, fought as soldiers, enlisted soldiers in the Confederate Army between uh, 1861 and 1865. And that's a big gap. It is a big gap. And and that is one of the first problems that people should notice with with this narrative. But it's a narrative that lives almost entirely online on hundreds, if not thousands of uh-huh. of websites that have appeared over the last few decades. Um, and so maybe we can talk about sort of that aspect of the myth, but its connection to the popularity of the internet as a place mm-hmm. where people now consume history is a big part of the story. Hmm. That's fantastic because I think that's true of all, I'm, a lot of history. I mean, I, I personally, um, I use a lot of, I look for a lot of primary sources online and I find a lot of secondary sources that are, kind of baffling. I think, Isaac, you've had the same yeah, experience. Yeah, the, the internet's <laughs> usually a good starting point, but, um, you know, the, the most important part of all, any of those articles is always the reference list somewhere. Hopefully there is one. <laughs> you know, yeah. for those no, it's, it's a huge yeah. problem for all of us who um, 
who engage in some form of public education, public history. If we're teaching in the classroom, I mean, our students, the public generally, they get their information from websites online, right? The internet. Mm -hmm. And most of us don't think at all about sort of what search terms we're plugging into our preferred search engine. Mm -hmm. And we're certainly not thinking about um, the results that come up uh, as a result. We're just clicking on the top link and we just assume that Google ranks, you know, their websites um, based on their truth value. And of course, we know that that's not true. And so this sort of social or digital digital media illiteracy is, is really problematic, not just, you know, in terms of um, how we think and consume history, but just questions about citizenship, right? How we consume news, how we consume information, right. and whether or not we can agree on the basic facts, right? Right. It's sure. like the Abraham Lincoln quote, don't believe everything you read on the internet. <laughs> well said. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed, it. Internet. Nailed it. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, to, to talk about that myth, you, you, you actually quantify it. You, you give it the, it's the, considering it the most prevalent myth mm-hmm. about the Civil War. That, that's pretty, at least I, I consider that a pretty big statement because there's, I think, quite a few myths about the Civil War that yeah. are sort of putzing around. Why is this one most prevalent and, and in your view, like the most significant? I think because it, it certainly, in the end, relates to a fundamental misunderstanding about, um, about the Civil War, and that is the place of slavery, slavery in our understanding of the Civil War. And I think, you know, you know, for a long time, I think the popular view of the Civil War was that, you know, it was caused by a disagreement over the Constitution, right? The so-called mm-hmm. states' rights view uh, of the cause of the mm-hmm. Civil War. And... The, the black Confederate myth, the modern version, uh, is sort of an extension of this long history of avoiding um, that issue. The, again, the question about slavery's importance. Um, because, of course, the argument goes for people who, who believe this, if, in fact, a significant number of, of black men fought as soldiers in the Confederate army, then it makes no sense to argue that the Confederacy was fighting to maintain slavery and white supremacy. And so if you think about slavery or or just the misunderstanding of of slavery's importance as um, the fundamental misunderstanding or myth about the war, the black Confederate narrative is is certainly an outgrowth of that. So it's it's sort of right there at the center of this um, myth about the war that was, you know, sort of propagated right after the beginning, right, right at the end of the war and into the post-war period, this lost cause belief mm-hmm. that the, the Confederacy wasn't fighting um, to preserve the institution of slavery. Right. So when you're talking about these soldiers, are you talking about these perceived soldiers? Were they enslaved men or were they free men or were they both? Yeah. And so, you know, it leads to one of the two important goals that I have for the book, which was... Mm-hmm. On the one hand, to dismantle the myth and sort of to un, untangle it, you know, why it's so popular today. The second was to actually talk about the way in which enslaved labor functioned in the Confederate Army. And so the first two chapters of the book are really about the war itself and the Confederate Army, the identity, if you will, of the Confederate Army or racial profile of the Confederate Army. And, you know, if you're looking at, say, uh, Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, Mm-hmm. In the summer of 1863, an army that numbered somewhere around 75,000 
as it's marching north into Maryland, into Pennsylvania, culminating in the Battle of Gettysburg at the beginning of July of 63, there may have been as many as 10,000 enslaved men uh, with Hmm. that army. And there would have been thousands of, you know, for what people would have called for a long time, body servants, personal slaves Mm -hmm. of mainly Confederate officers from the slave-holding class. And then there would have been mm-hmm. thousands of impressed laborers. These are uh, enslaved men uh, that are impressed from their owners um, mm-hmm. and forced to work in different departments of the Confederate Army. So I wanted to, you know, I focused mainly on the body servants or what I call camp slaves mm-hmm. uh, in the book. And I really wanted to try to understand um, what their role was and, and, and why we can't understand the Confederate Army in terms of how well it functioned, um, mm-hmm. how the battles and campaigns unfolded without actually coming to terms with the fact that these armies operated on the backs of enslaved workers, right? Um, right. Mainly those body servants who are uh, an extension of their master's service. They're not part of the Confederate Army in any legitimate way. They're not part of the hierarchy of, of the military Mm -hmm. Uh, They are owned, right? They are legal extensions of their masters, but they're still there in camp. They're still making it possible for their owners to do what they need to do as officers of um, companies, of um, regiments, and even into the brigade and division level. And so they're an integral part of that structure. And so, you know, we talk about slavery often in the abstract when it comes Mm -hmm. to the Civil War, that the South where the Confederacy was fighting to maintain this institution, oftentimes people want to draw a distinction between that and their great-great-grandparents, who they want to argue uh, may not have owned slaves, was not fighting in the army to preserve slavery, or the army generally wasn't, uh, we don't have to worry about slavery when talking about battles and and campaigns. And Mm -hmm. one of the things I wanted, wanted to do with this, with these first two chapters, was to say that distinction is untenable that we have to understand what Alexander Stevens described, the vice president in 1861, as the cornerstone of the Confederacy, slavery as that cornerstone. It was the cornerstone in an abstract sense uh, and in a very real sense, um, especially in the army. So if you're a Confederate soldier who didn't own any slaves, Mm -hmm. standing next to someone who owned 100 slaves, both of you understood the importance of enslaved labor in that army. You, right. you woke up to it every day. You could see it everywhere, in camp, on the march, and even on the battlefield. So it's absolutely vital, I think, to, to acknowledge their presence. That's interesting, because I, I, you know, even when we're, you don't see, especially in popular history, a lot of consideration for the support systems that are necessary for armies to, to, to right. you know, conduct the campaigns that they're doing. I mean, which is something that, in, in a modern sense, we very much understand that, you know, for every fighter jet there, every pilot, there's like dozens of people on the ground that are supporting that one unit that is actually going out and fighting. Um, but you're saying that that was true even of the, the Confederate army or at yeah, both the armies I mean, during that, the civil war. That means uh, working in hospitals. That means um, functioning as teamsters, driving wagons, uh, ensuring that supply lines are maintained. Anything that the army needs to function Enslaved labor does that work. And that's important. That's absolutely I mean, crucial for the Confederacy because, of course, you know, the, the Confederacy is operating under a lot of constraints. You know, the most obvious one is just sheer population. The population of mm-hmm. the white South, the total population of the South in 61 is 9 million. 
half that population is enslaved. The population of the North is roughly right. 19 million. So just in terms of sheer manpower, how many uh, you know, white men of military age uh, you're going to be able to mobilize? The Confederacy, of course, has a huge disadvantage. And so the more work that could be done by enslaved labor, the more white mm. men can shoulder a rifle in the army. And so not just in the army, you know, um, at munitions factories like the Tredegar Ironworks in Richmond, mm-hmm. enslaved laborers doing that work, maintaining and constructing rail lines throughout the Confederacy. A lot of that work was done by enslaved labor. And of course, constructing earthworks around cities like Richmond, outside of Charleston, South Carolina, uh, as defense. That work mm-hmm. is all being done by enslaved labor. And, um, and you know, that we've, I think we've, we've known for a long time. Historians have have uh, have written about this, but the army has, I think, for for a lot of historians and especially for the general public, or what you might call civil war buffs, uh, it's it's mm-hmm. escaped our attention. Uh, and I think it's right. um, it's it's again, it's hugely problematic, especially if you visit battlefields. You visit mm-hmm. a place like Gettysburg, and it's easy to get sort of sucked up into this, following the regiments, following the ebb and flow of battle. And losing sight of the larger issues that were at play in these battles, right? What was it all for? Why does it matter that, that one side won a particular battle? Um, when Lee's army goes into Pennsylvania in, in the summer of mm-hmm. 63, Pennsylvania was a free state. That right. means Robert E. Lee brought the institution of slavery into the free state of Pennsylvania during the Civil mm-hmm. War. How does that fact shift or, or enrich how we understand the importance of that campaign and um, its outcome. Hmm. And you said that army was it ten seventy around seventy five thousand total around seventy five thousand yeah and over ten thousand enslaved at men? least at least at, at least and that means um, that you know I think it's safe to say that we're talking about an, an army of slaves. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's an enormous have, percentage. It's, it's, it is enormous. And, you know, we get glimpses of what, you know, that army would have looked like as it's marching north, because I came across a number of accounts um, from officers who had body servants or camp slaves um, with them. And a number of them talk about at the end of each regiment as they're marching, all of the camp slaves or body servants within that regiment would have been marching together. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, we know that some of these enslaved men wore uniforms. Either they were supplied by their masters uh, or in some cases were purchased with the money they may have earned on free time during camp when they're encamped. And so you have to imagine for some people looking at a Confederate army and seeing perhaps at the end of a regiment, maybe seeing 30 to 50 black men marching, some of them holding the weapons of their masters and others, right? Uh, That Mm -hmm. would have been quite a sight. And it's easy to see how some of these stories early on um, end up getting sort of manipulated, right? Or or misunderstood as evidence of uh, the Confederacy utilizing black soldiers um, during the war itself. So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. 
But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It, now, was that data as far as how many people were involved and how what what percentage of the the army was was enslaved easy to find? Just just when, to get really at the core of like where this misunderstanding comes from, like was that yeah. was it just sitting there and just no one was looking at it, or I, were you I, I, toiling I through? Admit, I did not crunch the numbers myself. I relied on a number of a couple of studies uh, from mm-hmm. historians who have sort of looked at different aspects of the structure of of these armies and um, sort of mm-hmm. estimating, you know what what a regiment would have looked like in terms of the number of enslaved men attached to it, right? And then sort of um, calculating out from that, right? And also, I think, sort of other factors. So certainly during the end of the war, uh, there were likely, Mm -hmm. the the number would have been significantly smaller as the armies Mm -hmm. are suffering from increased desertion, as um, enslaved men are taking more of an opportunity to run off when they're in close proximity to uh, the United States Army. So, right. you know, you have to sort of take into account a, a range of factors. Uh, part of the problem is um, a lot of these records just didn't survive. Um, and right. so, you know, you, you have to sort of rely on on what's available. Well, to jump off of Isaac's question, it's really cool mm-hmm. the way you deal with sources in your book. So you talk about, of course, the images, the the photographs of, you know, you see these African-Americans in Confederate uniforms and people you say on the Internet, people have used this to prove that they were, in fact, soldiers, Um, as well as I know pensions. You say, well, people, you know, well, they got pensions. So clearly they were soldiers. So can you talk a little bit about your sources that you engaged? I tried to use the sources. Well, first, I should say I made a conscious effort to use sources that in many cases are accessible to people that you can access Mm -hmm. online. Um, because one of the things, you know, I knew I was going to be criticized for is, um, well, I mean, as a historian, um, as someone sort of <laughs> sort of engaged in, in this particular subject or researching mm-hmm. this particular subject, it's easy to be dismissed. Uh, it's easy to be dismissed as sort of another academic or left leaning, right. whatever, you know, that, you know, the drill. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I just wanted to you know, be able to say, well, take a look for yourself. Right. right. And I also wanted to use primary source material as a kind of object lesson to say, look, this is how I went through interpreting this material. Right. And 
you may not agree with me. Um, mm -hmm. Here's the material. Go at it. And, you know, if you really want to engage in a serious discussion with me about this stuff, try to interpret it on your own. Of course, mm -hmm. the problem, I think, mm -hmm. in, this, in this case is that many people just simply don't know how to do that. Now, I, I'm not right. saying that as someone, I don't have a PhD in history, I have a master's degree, um, but I've certainly sort of done the legwork. I've, I've spent, you know, my time, you know, thinking about this stuff, reading other historians, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, at some point we do need to acknowledge that thinking historically is a skill and it takes right. practice. It takes um, falling on your face a number of times and getting it wrong. Uh, to be able to begin to sort of fashion something that is um, going to convince other people, right? Um, right? Who bring a critical perspective to 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 their own reading of your work. Uh, and I think a lot of people just simply aren't aware of that. And so you can just take the cover of my book, you know, that famous photograph of Silas and Andrew Chandler, where they're sitting mm -hmm. both in uniform, appear to be heavily armed. I mean, who yep. wouldn't think that what they're looking at are two bonafide confederate soldiers but you have to, as we all know you have to have the right questions to ask you have to right. be able to bring in context you have to be able to critically evaluate the primary source material itself right mm -hmm. um, and only then can you even begin to start you know fashioning an interpretation and so um, a lot of that source material you know i was pulling off websites just you know, just to say, okay, here it is. Let's look at mm -hmm. it with a new perspective. Here's you can the find context. a lot of really cool primary sources online. I mean, Ancestry. Yep. Um, you yep. know, some of the Library of Congress has photographs of tons of primary sources. A absolutely. And so it's not just the websites of individuals who have decided that what they're looking at are, you know, is proof of black Confederate soldiers. Those institutions right. are absolutely vital in this work. And, but again, I think it, getting back to the sort of the, the start of our conversation, it also creates a kind of tension because on the one hand, everyone can be their own historian, right? And right. so there's something valuable about that. And at the same time, it's also on the internet, the wild west, there are no gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. Everyone's yeah. view has, right, you know, can, equal validity if you will right yeah i mean the pensions yeah, are say. really interesting i was just gonna say one more thing the yeah, pensions yeah, sure. are a really interesting example because in many cases most people at least people that i've talked to never have never even seen the pensions a right. lot of the pensions actually say on them these are pensions for former slaves they draw mm -hmm. a very clear distinction between former slaves and soldiers right right it's just it's mind-boggling But if you don't see them, cases. you don't see that one sentence, and so exactly. you can assume. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Sorry, Isaiah, yeah, I cut that, you off there. No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's a great point, um, that you're not actually... Because I, I would say that the, the accessibility of those things provides a unique challenge, because it, you, you brought it up, that, that those being the most accessible are probably the most misinterpreted. That's that, right. that, you know, that famous image is the most misunderstood, because it's been seen so many times, because it's been, mm -hmm. you know... And, and, looked and at so many I should times. say... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was going to say that um, the great-great-granddaughter of the man in that image um, contacted me, must have been 12 years ago, and this mm -hmm. is a woman who um, had long been trying to combat this myth in their own family cemetery where he's buried, where the sons of Confederate oh, really? veterans continue 
to place a sort of the equivalent of a Medal of Honor, Confederate, you know, Medal of Honor in front of his grave, honoring him mm-hmm. or recognizing him as a soldier. And, right. uh, you know, we, you, I, when I first met her online, I got, I could sense the frustration of, because she had done the work. She knew the, the, that this was largely a myth. Um, and mm-hmm. it's, um, it, it's, it doesn't matter, right? It's, um, it's who tells the best story. It's right. whether or not your website ranks high on the search engines. Right. Um, yeah. Who, who has the influence? Uh, who's telling the story, right? Matters. Right. Yeah. So to get back to the, yeah. uh, the source of that story. So when did the, this stuff, you said it, it, it started, the, the myth started to be sort of like coalesce right at the end of, or as early as the end of the war. That's when, yeah, so, you know, so I, I want to draw a distinction here because certainly during the war, um, for political purpose purposes, you know, people like Frederick Douglass, right, the great black mm-hmm. abolitionist who, who have been pushing for the recruitment of African-Americans from day one. He has a newspaper. He's operating a newspaper. Other, you know, other people who are also pushing for black recruitment are using some of the early stories during the war, people who believe that what they were looking at were black soldiers in Confederate camps, Confederate earthworks, were publicizing these stories to convince the Republican administration, the Lincoln administration in Washington, mm-hmm. hey, the Confederacy is util- utilizing African Americans, utilizing their enslaved labor. If you don't pass a similar policy, we're going to use that potential pool of labor, of possible soldiers. Right. Um, and so you better do it, right? So they are manipulating those stories. Uh, many of them are secondhand, right? Douglas never observes them himself. They're just sort of picking and choosing these stories from the front um, mm-hmm. and using them for political purposes. At no point does Douglas or really anyone else that I can uh, think of right now ever sort of suggest that there were tens of thousands. It's just that these individual accounts were useful. Now, interesting... Right. Um, when these stories get printed in Northern newspapers, especially in 1862, early 1863, Confederates Mm -hmm. went out of their way to deny this. When they would hear about these Hmm. or read Northern newspapers, they would get incredibly frustrated because, of course, they understood what they were fighting for. They were fighting, of course, to maintain slavery. Uh, They were fighting to maintain a white republic. And the idea of black men fighting as citizen soldiers in their army is mm-hmm. just outrageous to them, right? Um, this is what they're fighting to prevent, the arming of men, right? This is the right. South. Mm-hmm. This is a, you know, has a history of trying to prevent black men from gaining possession of weapons. So that is sort of the, the wartime fabrication, if you will. But the modern myth, as far as I can tell, really doesn't kick into high gear until the mid to late 1970s. And it, hmm. it, it, it appears in response to sort of a, an evolving Civil War memory that is mm-hmm. increasingly coming to acknowledge both the centrality of slavery as a cause of the war, and especially the service of roughly 200,000 black men who fought as soldiers in the United States Army. Right. And, so it, and it also, interestingly, I point this out in the book, the first signs of this myth uh, appear in the wake of the popularity of the television miniseries Roots, which right. aired in 1977. Huh. Incredibly popular, 
Uh, yeah. For the first time, I think many white Americans, especially, are you know exposed to a darker version of um, of slavery. You know, right. in contrast to that Gone with the Wind mythology, and you begin to see rumblings in Confederate heritage groups like the Sons of Confederate Veterans. We need to protect our story. We need to protect the legacy of the Confederacy. It wasn't about slavery. Slavery was good, right? Race relations between whites and blacks in the antebellum South were positive, right? Uh, That's the lost cause narrative of the Civil War. Jump ahead to 1989 and the success of the Hollywood movie Glory, right? Mm -hmm. Think about that movie centered on the 54th Massachusetts, the first black regiment raised in the North. Denzel Washington gets an Oscar for the Best Supporting Actor. That puts that narrative on the front page for the first time. And so you can really begin to see this narrative begin to, um, to, to sort of expand within, you know, these Confederate heritage groups. Mm-hmm. But it's not until the Internet that it really sort of takes off. And that's why it's so important. That's why I sort of started off with that point. Mm-hmm. Um, the narrative um, as Americans, as this memory of the war continues to shift, and focus more on slavery and emancipation, you see more of a defensive posture from from neo-Confederates, from Confederate heritage folks, and others who just do not want to deal with the issue of race or deal with uh, anything that threatens uh, the legacy of their great-great-grandparents, right? Or, again, just the legacy of the Confederacy. So it's a defensive mechanism uh, in many respects. So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. Right. And and can you share what your thoughts are? I know recently, so I'm in Charlottesville, and I know there's been a lot of issues here about statues. And yeah, about, my former you know, home. the statue of Robert E. Lee. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful place. And it is. I mean, there's, you know, and those statues, as far as I'm aware of, were m- put up much, much after, you oh, know, yeah. later after the war. 1920s. And, then, yep. and it was, right, and it was because there was essentially separate neighborhoods. There was sort of the white Charlottesville neighborhood and the black Charlottesville neighborhood. And it was sort of a way to, there was a lot more of subcontext to it than I think many people are aware of today. So what are your thoughts on the whole statue? Yeah, I, I lived and taught in Charlottesville for 11 years, um, you know, high school history. I used those mm-hmm. statues you know, in my Civil War class, uh, taking mm-hmm. my students downtown to those two squares and other sites in and around Charlottesville to talk about, you know, the difference between history and memory, right? How those statues yes. reflect how Americans have remembered the Civil War at different points in time. And of course, tomorrow is the five-year anniversary of, um, well, tonight I think is the anniversary of the march on the UVA campus, but tomorrow, of course, the violence yep. uh, in downtown Charlottesville. I remember watching it live and seeing mm-hmm. some of my former students in the crowd of the counter-protesters. Um, yeah. Um, and those statues, as you rightly point out, helped to, to do the work of segregation in, mm-hmm. uh, in places like Charlottesville. Same with Monument Avenue in Richmond. Uh, when those right. monuments went up, they were advertised by real estate companies as places for white families to build new homes in this brand new neighborhood. And if you look at many of the ads, they actually say restrict, they have the restrictive clauses that no lots will be sold to people of African descent. Um, In Charlottesville, what's interesting is the Stonewall Jackson equestrian monument, which I Mm -hmm. think is, was a, had some artistic merit, was Mm -hmm. actually placed in a, 
neighborhood that was a at one time a, a black community, and so they they did that work of displacing African Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I think um, I think it's I think the reckoning that we've seen over the last few years is um, is long overdue. Mm-hmm. I think that we need need to do a much better job of acknowledging the fact that these monuments have always been controversial. It's just right. that for some people, they've never had a voice to actually bring about change. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's unfortunate that it took uh, the kind of racial violence that we've seen over the last few years to sort of make this happen. So I understand um, why many of these monuments, memorials, and statues have come down or have been relocated. Um, I think, you know, the monuments went up because locals wanted them up and our public spaces reflect what we take to be our our shared values. They should be places where everyone can look at, embrace um, as their own, as representing who they are. And Mm -hmm. when a monument or anything else that's placed in a public space makes you feel as if you are less than um, welcome or less than a full citizen, you know, especially where many of these statues are located uh, in front of courthouses where, you know, where you used to go to vote, you seek justice, right? Um, Mm -hmm. It's absolutely important that that we find a solution um, for... For these statues. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think um, it can be a, an incredibly painful one, I think, especially for white Americans who may never have thought twice about having a Robert E. Lee statue a couple blocks from their home and then having to listen to others who have always thought that they represent racism, white supremacy. And that can right. cause a great deal of defensiveness and, and, and feelings of, of discomfort. Um, so I I hope these conversations continue um, and um, and we find ways to to transform many of these landscapes. It's, it's interesting that you talked about the difference between history and, and, and memory because um, yes. Lynn ha- has always, I, I found, so I, I've only recently in the last couple of years gotten into the public history world. I wasn't, I was always a, a you know, a little bit of a buff, but never really uh, involved yeah. directly. But Lynn's always gotten on my case about um, being so enamored <laughs> with the, cons- the like just the exploration of historiography. <laughs> Um, because yeah. that is what has enamored me the most uh, as I stepped into this world. It's like sort of like the evolving imp- impressions of, of, of the past as, and how they change over time. Um, yeah. And Lynn basically yells at me and says, listen, as soon as you say that word, everyone stops listening to you. Um, <laughs> well, not and, historians, but... Not historians, <laughs> but like, you know, the, av- you know, the average... glaze over, but not yeah, the historians. Yeah, historians get excited. <laughs> yeah, everyone, historians get excited, but everyone else stops listening. But it, 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 what you just said is the it, that they were always... That the statues were always controversial to a certain subset of the population, that they went up in a particular context. That's historiography. Right. Like, in, in, like, the understanding of that is actually essential for the public to know. Yeah. The fact that yeah. that is, you know, we are are currently interpreting and reinterpreting and changing the context in which uh, we're, we're thinking about these things all the time. Um, That's right. You have, to, you have to think about it as a fluid thing versus mm-hmm. this, you know, because I grew up, so I was in school in the, uh, you know, in the 90s. Like 
post glory, post all this stuff. And I, you know, I didn't hear explicitly about, uh, you know, this cause I grew up in the Northeast probably mostly. That's probably why, but yeah, same here. Th- the idea yeah. that black men fought in the Southern army, in the Confederate army is something that I knew quote unquote, mm-hmm. I'm making air quotes. Um, like I knew that <laughs> I, I thought that that was a, th- that was just an accepted idea. I didn't realize that it was, you know, brand new, <laughs> like, uh, to use the other definition of the word new or the other word. It sounds, sounds yeah. very similar, but, yeah. uh, that it was like very, very fresh in the idea and in in sort of solidifying itself in the public consciousness, um, had no awareness of that because that's just, I was just birthed into that era. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it feels everything as if everything is static and so solid and so specific when, um, when you're just learning, when you have yeah. very little expertise in the area. Um, right. And I think this is also why the the public discussion right now about education and history is just so divisive. Because, you know, on the one side, Absolutely. I think there is this perception that, that history simply is a kind of... Um, timeless narrative right um that mm-hmm. that you're that that hist- a history education is simply the student is sort of something along the lines of a sponge right sort of absorbing stories that have some kind of um civic resonance right um mm-hmm. that bind us together in some uh, in some fashion as americans and then on the other hand um you know the fact that well you know and Think of David McCullough, the, the historian who, who just passed away. I mean, mm-hmm. he was a champion of that view, right? That 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 history has a kind of civic import, that it that it can function as a kind of glue that binds Americans together. This sort of what historians call that consensus history, right? Right. But that consensus history uh, that is now being challenged was never inclusive, right? Was right. Uh, distorted American history in so many ways, right? Left out so much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to fulfill what Americans or white Americans needed at the height of the Cold War in this sort of ideological struggle with the Soviet Union. And now, of course, people pushing in, we're pushing back and saying, well, what if we look at American history, not from the perspective of 1776, but maybe from the perspective of 1619? Um, right. What does American history look like if if we sort of look at the grassroots of the civil rights movement, right? Uh, or immigration, uh, the story of women, right? Which, is, which has been there for a while, but of course, on the periphery. And I think th- that is also, I think, a, a fundamental... That, that's a rub, right? On the we can see memory playing out, right? Right. That for a long time, how people wanted to remember, frame American history for those decades is now being challenged by people who have perhaps always seen it from a different perspective, but are now finding ways um, to sort of introduce that um, into the classroom and beyond in our public discussion. I mean, that's part of what the monument debate is about, right? Those monuments no mm-hmm. longer reflect our shared past. Right. 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 Yeah, that's uh, you know, that's an important uh, important thing to 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 understand. Uh, it, it's incredibly valuable. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we why we started this podcast. It's because certain things get weeded out when when you you start crafting that narrative string. We're oversimplifying history. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and oversimplifying. Exactly. The, the, right. Yeah, things are often too complicated for that simple narrative, so that they get forgotten or shaved off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. 
just to get back to, and this is, you know, just to get back to your, your, I know your, it's so interesting. We could go in so many tangents. Exactly. Um, and I'm happy but to, the, to be honest. But, <laughs> but to get back to your book, this is, this is a little bit of tying both of these ideas together. In, in the idea that something is more complicated, you, you talk specifically, I guess my first question, could you find soldier? Because we've talked about, hey, these people were soldiers, right? So mm -hmm. that idea of what a soldier is is an important concept for us to sort of nail down. Um, but I did want to bring that – after we do that, I do have an, a, a way to bring it into the historiographical idea that we were just talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for the United States Army before the Civil War, um, I mean, the military was not <laughs> – comparing it to, say, the 20th century, was certainly not a popular route. Uh, for young um, white Americans, uh, right. North or South or West, right? Um, it was, uh, you know, the sort of, um, you may have gone to West Point, uh, graduated, you know, become sort of an officer, junior officer, and, um, and waited decades for promotion. The Army, I think, the size of the Army by 1860 is roughly 16,000 um, spread along the frontier, dealing with, of course, American expansion, uh, and problems on the on the frontier with with Native Americans, and so of course, that process of becoming a soldier was the formal process of enlistment, either through West Point or volunteering as an enlisted soldier and taking that oath, signing the right papers. But it was a formal process. Jumping to the war, of course, um, you know you could join regiments through your state. You could join uh, a couple regiments uh, on a national level. And it was also, you know, a similar process, right? Signing the papers, you have an enlistment paper. Um, it's a formal process. But in both cases, we're talking about a, a very specific relationship between the federal government and the citizen, right? So the, the men who are serving in both the United States Army uh, and the Confederate Army are what you might call citizen soldiers, right? And this is an important distinction because it helps us understand, especially for the Confederacy, um, why African-Americans were resisted for so long until the final weeks of the war, and even why they were resisted initially in the United States Army, and that mm -hmm. is they weren't citizens. And right. the idea in a republic is that as a citizen, you have an obligation if your country needs you, needs you to volunteer, right? That is sort of part of that reciprocal relationship between the citizen and the state, right? And then after your term of service is, is over, after you are no longer needed, you go back to becoming a citizen, right? And that's right. exactly what happens in the United States Army. After 1865, the demobilization takes place, and the, armies, the army quickly... Um, you know, returns not to its pre-war levels, but certainly not to two million at its height uh, during the, the, the Civil War. Um, and again, I, I stress that it's an important point here because mm -hmm. especially in the South, in the Confederacy, enslaved men are not citizens. Now, they're not really citizens or it's right. fuzzy in the North. The Dred Scott decision, the famous Supreme Court decision in mm -hmm. 1857, of course, declared that African-Americans could not be citizens uh, of, mm -hmm. of the United States, uh, mm -hmm. but they are allowed to enlist in 18, beginning in 1863. But it certainly is part of what helps us understand why in the Confederacy they are resisted for so long. Because if you make slave soldiers, then the entire architecture of the Confederacy crumbles. The entire purpose of the Confederacy crumbles. Because if you're going to make them soldiers, 
then you've collapsed the racial hierarchy, right? right. Mm-hmm. And, and people acknowledge this during the war. Remember in 1864, the Confederacy engaged in a very public, very divisive debate about this very issue. More and mm-hmm. more people, I mean, the issue would come up during the war, uh, the question of black enlistment, but certainly mm-hmm. a lot more people by 1864 are beginning to see the writing on the wall that if something drastic isn't done, the Confederacy's chances are, are over. It's going to be defeat. And so, you know, you can read newspapers from every part of the Confederacy, read the editorials. You can read the letters from soldiers who are following this debate, right, who are in the army, writing back home their views about black enlistment. You can read people on the home front. You can read the politicians in Richmond who are debating this, people like Jefferson Davis, the president, even Robert E. Lee is getting in on the action. Um, And so the question of, of enlistment, it directly connects to the whole question of citizenship. And there are mm-hmm. plenty of people who make that very specific point. If we, if we recruit them, then what are we fighting for? The other thing that's important about the debate that I think most people forget about is, you know, that 10, 10 plus years of reading this stuff, not once did I come across anyone in the army, on the home front, in the halls of the Confederate Congress, regardless of their position on enlistment of of slaves as soldiers. Not one person said, oh, by the way, they're already fighting in the army. Not one person. You'd think you'd find one person. I even had a a reward at one point when I was, uh, when I was blogging. Uh, If you can find a source, you know, there's a, there's a reward, there's a monetary reward for you. (laughs) I mean, not one, right? You'd think someone would have commented, especially the soldiers in the army. So, I mean, entire regiments are voting at this time on whether or not to allow black men to enlist as soldiers. Right. You'd think if they were already there as soldiers, they would have said, oh, by the way, guys, no need to debate this. It's already happening. It just wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in those debates, not this specific debate, but the, it's not like that question wasn't asked or wasn't simmering on the minds of people, and especially in the South, for gen, like a full generation. Because they had similar yeah. conversations during the Revolutionary War. That's like, exactly hey, right. What do we do with these with, with these black men with that we want to give guns to? Like, you know, yeah. what, that we, it would be beneficial for us to give guns to because they're they're fighting, you know, they're able to That's fight. A, that, that is Can ex- we? That is exactly right. That is exactly right. And, and they're paying attention, especially after the United States begins recruiting black men uh, into its own army. And especially once mm-hmm. those black men uh, are on the battlefield fighting Confederates, right? All of this, I think, sort of... Um, you know, sort of lends itself to, you know, to sort of the point that people who believe this nonsense um, just haven't spent enough time just reading the history, the basic history, yeah. right? Right. Again, that context is so important. Mm-hmm. It was interesting that you were drawing it to at least some people's, you know, wants to, 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 in, in, to protect the memory that they are a family memory of a great, great, you know, father or yeah. that fought i just think it's interesting even if you're thinking about that say say because so my family is actually relatively new to the united states i don't have any family history that goes past like 1890 here so i, I i'm i'm, I'm well divorced from this <laughs> for, as a from a personal level and so i may not understand you know fully acknowledging right. that i don't you know i don't i don't i don't have any of that i might, I might be incredibly biased because i don't have that context but 
it, it seems to reason to think about the army and, and these citizen soldiers that, the, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to think of them as like these avatars for these ideological stands. But the reason someone signs some of those papers are, are in, of themselves incredibly complicated. Like, you know, the, right. the just, you know, whether or not, like, there, there's all sorts of coercion and, and, and you know, societal pressures and even, you know, it could be economic pressures, a ton of things that drive someone to say, hey, I'm willing to put my life on the line and get paid Such for a good it. point. Such a good you know, point. That's, it's so complicated. Like, if you look at, you can't think of uh, even, it, it's easy to think of it today, right? I mean, you know, we think about the war, war in Afghanistan and, and many of those things, and there's a myriad of soldiers, a plurality of soldiers mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that come out of veterans that come out of those wars being like, hey, this was a mistake. There's plenty of soldiers that came out of Vietnam that like, hey, this was a little bit more. When I got over there, you know, we may not have been, I, I believed the propaganda, but I don't necessarily believe what was happening. Um, and, and, and there's nothing to, no reason to think that that wasn't necessarily true at the time. Um, that there are a, a whole host of reasons why someone would get in. That they're not like a card-carrying member of the, I, listen, I am a white supremacist, absolutely, and believe 100% all of these things in this book, uh, right. or in this, on this pamphlet. I, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And I think I'll, I'll, I'll take it one step further. I think it's... Um, I think for people who do that, who engage in that, you know, um, that kind of defensive, uh, in, uh, that posture, you know, defending the legacy of, of an ancestor, uh, I think they're the ones who are dishonoring their memory, right? Who are hmm. not willing to sort of face, um, you know, what may have been the case or, or uncomfortable mm-hmm. truths. In many cases, look, I mean, the nice thing about, you know, if you study this, the American Civil War, especially if you're interested in, in the soldier experience, mm-hmm. I mean, you can spend the rest of your life reading just Confederate diaries and Confederate letters alone. Forget the United States Army during the Civil War. Um, but even with that, even granted that, in most cases, most people who claim some kind of ancestor don't have a single letter, don't have a single page of a diary to work with. They have right. absolutely no idea why their ancestor was in the war, whether he was, as you say, possibly coerced, drafted mm-hmm. in the army, um, and what he thought at any given time, right? Um, I mean, it's also bizarre to just sort of assume that soldiers were consistent in their thinking throughout the war. Right. Um, and, and unfortunately, I think historians are part of the problem here. I think, I think Civil War historians, a lot of the scholarship has been an attempt to answer the question of why they were fighting, right. as if there is an answer to that question, right. rather than yeah. looking at individual soldiers and looking at the complexity of their experience over time. Um, I, I don't want to be—I I didn't mean to be too dismissive of that sort of earlier question, but I do think, yeah, just to get to your point, um, look, man, let's 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 be brave here. And, and, and if we're serious about this, wanting to know and understand, let's look at it. Right. And let's, let's let the evidence take us where it takes us and, and, and deal with it. Right. It's not a, I oftentimes feel, you know, I'm talking to some people that they think it's a commentary on, on their own uh, morality or, or Mm -hmm. uh, legitimacy. Right. I mean, look, you're not responsible for what your great, great grand grandfather did. Right. Well, that's my own view, right? Um, but oftentimes right. people behave as if um, everything yeah, is the sins stake. of the father but, need but to the, be. Yeah, yeah. The, exactly. I, I'm just going to say, I, but I, I also think it points to the fact that a lot of this is not really about history. A lot of this, I think, is where history and 
you know, our own culture and politics uh, overlap, right? Quite mm -hmm. often when I'm talking to people about the Black Confederate myth uh, or about the legacy of the Confederacy, I, I soon realize that we're not talking about history as much as we're talking about current issues, right? Sure. And, right. and that's, that's part of this conversation. Absolutely. And one of our, our big questions that we sort of have been keeping on the forefront of our mind in our first episode for this was, what does it mean to be an American? And sometimes it seems like even in, in this with the Civil War, that it's a battle over, you know, who really belongs here, who really is oh. an American. And so, yeah. I'm just yep. wondering, you know, when has has anybody sort of broached that topic with you, and what are your thoughts on it? Uh, I I couldn't agree with you more. I think quite often it, it is it is sort of a window into you know the current cultural divide. It's it's um, quite often it's a discussion about ultimately who can consider themselves to be a legitimate Southerner. Right. Right. Um, oh, yes. Quite often, yes. a lot of this is when you're talking to people who are defending the South, quote unquote, the South, really what they're talking about are white Southerners, white Southerners mm -hmm. from a specific time. Um, and so explicitly or implicitly, this becomes a conversation about immigration, about changing mm -hmm. demographics. It's also, I think, a conversation about, in many cases, uh, the, the power of the federal government versus the states, right? It's a question yes. about overreach on the part of the federal government. Um, look, it's no, <laughs> it should come as no surprise that there was a Confederate flag, at least one, flown through the Capitol building on January 6th, um, 2020, right? right? 2021, mm -hmm. right? Um, on, yeah. my, my sense of time is like, because of COVID, so distorted. <laughs> um, right? Um, you know, there's a reason why um, they were, you know, the um, Unite the Right rally took place in a Charlottesville park defending mm -hmm. a Confederate uh, statue, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, uh, or why you find them being flown, if Confederate flags being flown in, you know, Trump rallies, right? Um, a lot of this is about current politics. Uh, it's, it's oftentimes impossible to see where one begins, where history begins and ends. And, you know, you you start a conversation about, you know, current culture and politics. It's, um, sure. it's incredibly difficult. Right. And it's, yeah, there's, there's this really, really common phrase, um, that, you know, I, I guess historians like to use it and stuff. That's like, history is written by the victors. Right. And, and what's strange <laughs> about the American civil war the more I look into it is that um, it doesn't seem to be true. <laughs> and when you consider the pervasiveness of, you know, things that are the you know, lost cause uh, ideas um, that it, it, it outright isn't like the ideological yeah. war was won at, at least in part by the folks that lost that war. I think and if I could a, just throw oh, in, go like, ahead. yeah, please. I just want to throw in a quick example. I grew up in Pittsburgh, and I never in my life thought of myself as a Yankee or a Northerner. I never thought of that. And then I moved to Virginia, and I would, you know, go to Civil War battlefields because, you know, I was a history nerd. So I'd go to the battlefields, yeah. and people would call me a Yankee. <laughs> you know, they'd say, oh, you're on that side. And I just, I literally had to take on a new identity that I am a Northerner and I'm a Yankee. And I just have to accept that in Virginia, that is part of my identity. Yeah. Which yeah. was so strange. Yeah. 
But of course, in Virginia now, it depends what, what part of Virginia you move to, right? I mean, yeah, if you're in Northern Virginia, Virginia yeah. um, Charlottesville, I Yeah, that's I not even Virginia, right? they'll say. I mean, yeah. Charlottesville <laughs> is sort of this um, little island, right? Island of, uh, of, um, of, of blue within this, you know, broader region of, of red. Um, so you have that dynamic. I, I do think there's a certain truth to that, that, you know, that this you know, what we call this lost cause narrative, this sort of um, celebratory narrative of the Confederacy, of the Confederate soldier, um, th this attempt to sort of distance the Confederacy and the Confederate soldier from slavery and, mm -hmm. and white supremacy, the idea that white Southerners were unified during the war, all of that, the lost cause, certainly, mm -hmm. I think, um, enjoyed a great deal of popularity. Um, in the post-war South for mm. the obvious reason that white Southerners were desperately trying to figure out how do you move on from defeat, right? How, sure. how do you begin to take those first steps? Mm -hmm. And it's certainly the case by the, by the beginning of the 20th century, you can see that monument landscape take shape, the one that we're now dealing with around much of the South, you know, that really becomes solidified uh, and is an extension of the lost cause. But I think also, you know, a, a, an extension or a reflection of race relations during the post-Reconstruction period into mm -hmm. the, the Jim Crow era. Right. But I don't think we want to go too far with this because I do think we, we need to leave room to acknowledge that there were other narratives, vibrant narratives, that, um, that held sway uh, and had some influence in, in other circles. There was an emancipationist mm -hmm. narrative that African-Americans continued to celebrate um, right. in the South, in their own churches, in their schools, and throughout parts of the North. There was a union narrative that celebrated, I think, what, I mean, that's a narrative that I think has largely been lost to Americans today. And it's a narrative that I think most white Americans in the United States would have embraced. Um, mm -hmm. And that is the idea that the Civil War that the result of the Civil War, the most important result of the Civil War, was not the end of slavery, um, but it was the reuniting of the nation. It was the right. preservation of the Union. And I think a lot of Americans today miss this because it's not a narrative that you can wrap your head around, right? It's You can understand why Southerners are fighting if, if they say, well, um, because we're defending our homes, we're defending our way of life. That makes sense. Right. But mm -hmm. how to understand a Mainer who volunteers in 1861 and, main, and, and remains in the war to the end, someone who, let's face it, comes from a place that would never have been militarily threatened during the war. Why mm -hmm. would you be willing to give your life for union? That concept, I think, has largely, largely been lost. And I think that narrative um, held a great deal of influence um, by the turn of the century, the 20th century. And it's also, I think, a narrative that many white Southerners embraced. I think we also forget that white Southerners by the early 20th century, as much as they're still embracing the lost cause, they believed that it was possible to both celebrate their failed cause and embrace a kind of new nationalism, especially right. as the United States was beginning to become an overseas power, right? right. Um, that reunion um, kind of pull, if you will, uh, was very much um, at work, you know, getting people to sort of see beyond their regional differences. So that reunion narrative also, I think, is part of this. But there's no question um, 
Isaac, that, that the lost cause, um, you know, enjoyed a healthy life, continues to enjoy um, a great deal of influence um, right. in certain circles today. There's no question about that. Yeah, that's actually a good point about the the, the uh, limitations of the union narrative, the idea of, of preservation of, of the union. And that, you know, because even I have a hard time wrapping my head around the idea of celebrating you know, the disconnect between celebrating a secessionist movement and also yeah. nationalism. As a, easier, <laughs> right? easier to yeah, it's easier yeah. to celebrate emancipation, right? Right, um, yeah. And to see that as the, um, as sort of the, the ultimate result. Victory. And look, yeah, I, I don't yeah. want to downplay that in any way. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely crucial. But most white Americans, most loyal white Americans, uh, I think viewed it as instrumental to saving the union. In other words, they supported recruiting black soldiers by 63, 64. They supported ending slavery because by ending slavery, you're going to more quickly end the war and you're going to guarantee a reunited nation moving forward. If you don't deal with slavery, um, then we're going to have this problem all over again at some point. And so certainly many soldiers who go down south who experience the horrors of slavery for the first time they do have an awakening there's no question about that um but i think to see the war the average um soldier or american white american generally as committed to a kind of um racial equality i think is um perhaps reflects this emancipationist narrative that we've embraced today Perhaps it has gone a little bit too far. We've, we've, it's a, it's a necessary corrective to the lost cause, but I think it has blinded mm -hmm. us to certain aspects of that experience, that wartime experience for the, the vast majority of the loyal citizenry. I think that's right. a really good point because, you know, we've been talking about the South, but we're making it sound like everyone in the union wanted to end slavery because they exactly. wanted equality. And, yeah. you know, you can't look at the union as, as just this, you know cohesive right honorable you know yeah. and, and, against the, like the bad south it really and so much do, more complicated the, the danger of doing that is how do you understand the next hundred years of american history exactly right i mean if everyone was fighting to reunite the nation and fighting for racial equality how do you explain the, the end of reconstruction at the end of right. the 1870s how do you explain um you know, uh, the racial riots that take place in the nor in northern cities um, mm -hmm. in the 20th century. Uh, I mean, it's just impossible. Right. So we shouldn't yeah, do I it. Think <laughs> acknowledging that complexity exactly. of the north is, 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 is hugely important. And, and I would direct our listeners to an interesting conversation that is relevant to this uh, with uh, Marcus, Dr. Marcus Nebius, about the difference between mm. slave societies and societies with slaves um, yeah. and his thoughts on that. And it's in another podcast episode that you should definitely listen to. Um, <laughs> awesome. But awesome. Um, we are coming up to the hour here. Um, and uh, um, Kevin, thank you so much. For, for joining us um, and, and it's an incre incredibly interesting subject and incredibly interesting discussion uh, covered covered a, t a ton of stuff um, but yeah. is, can our listeners yeah. um, if they want to follow your work uh, obviously they can buy your book um, but with uh, mm -hmm. is there anywhere online that they can find you find you and, and keep up you with know, what you're up to I, I do write uh, I have a Substack account um, called Civil War Memory and I pretty much update that daily I'm pretty good with that um, great and my personal website is uh the url is cwmemory.com uh so you can find me a number of places online 
And can you give a quick shout out for what you're working on now that I'm excited about? Yeah, no, thanks so much. I am uh, closing (laughs) in on completing a biography of Colonel Robert Gould Shaw, who was the commander of the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry, the first um, black regiment raised in the North during the Civil War. And so um, if you're thinking you may know of him, think of the movie Glory, 1989, Matthew Broderick. Exactly. That's the guy. That's the guy. Yeah. (laughs) Great. Very much looking forward to it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate it. Take care. Thank you for listening to the full episode of Too Complicated for History. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you did, please leave us a review on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on our social media platforms at 2C4H underscore podcast, or check out the link in the description. This will keep you in the loop for show updates, new episodes, and exclusive content. Too Complicated for History is a podcast from Primary Source Media, produced by Patrick Long and Lynn Price Robbins, edited and mixed by Curtis Fritch, opening theme music by Sheena Biratella. 